0: Hi and welcome to No BS. I'm Danielle. I'm Christina. And we are so excited to be back with you today. We're really excited about the guests that we have. As you know, we've been doing guests throughout season two, and all of them are specializing in different areas. And today, we're going to be focusing in on anxiety. So
1: I love focusing on anxiety something I relate to very well.
0: I know. And I feel like a lot of the people who listen to our podcast are always really interested in anxiety because it's one of those things that
1: like everyone has and nobody knows what to do with. Right. And nobody likes it because it's incredibly uncomfortable and everyone just wants to throw it away and get rid of it. Right. So
0: our guest today is Jordan and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about his specialty with anxiety and um, some of the alternative methods that he used to treat it. So welcome, Jordan.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, of course. So um, tell us a little bit about you and what got you into the field and working with this population.
2: You know, I never have a good answer to that question, like how I ended up here. I don't really know. It wasn't like a, I just kind of thought it'd be cool to do like a master's psychology program because I liked psychology. And then I did it and just kind of started doing counseling and I don't remember like a conscious decision when I was like, oh, I just, I really want to do this. So maybe there was, and I just don't remember it, but I just kind of like was always fascinated by psychology. Started studying the field, um, got into the field. And when I first graduated, I did a few years in substance abuse while I was getting licensed, fully licensed. And that was when I first started to get exposed to evidence-based treatments like CBT. So started Mm -hmm. to learn a little bit about that then. And then moved into out-of-substance abuse and doing just kind of like community mental health work and just continued to learn more about CBT interventions there. And I really got interested in anxiety at this point, probably during substance abuse, because you see so many patients coming in who you can tell are dealing with like a comorbid anxiety dish, uh, issue that's probably like not diagnosed. And it's kind of hard to diagnose if someone was just, you know, using heavy substances and is coming off and you don't know what's withdrawal, but you still saw it a lot. You can't help, but start to wonder like, well, is this, are these substances one way of coping with the anxiety? And if we really want to help them get over the substances, do we also need to really help them get over the anxiety as well too. Um, and oftentimes that was like not treated at all outside of just psychiatric medication. It just wasn't even talked about. So that's when I first started to get experience um, or just building my awareness of anxiety and how prevalent it is. And then I really got into a more, I would say that wasn't a conscious decision either. It was more just by necessity. You have so many people coming in and it's just by far the predominant issue that the patients and just kind of a more community setting are uh, struggling with just anxiety and all different types. So it was really just my necessity. And then me doing my own research and starting to figure out like, well, how do you treat this stuff? What is, what does the science say? What's the best way of, of treating anxiety disorders and really starting to go down that rabbit hole to provide the best care possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can totally understand. First of all, I completely relate to you when you're like, how do you answer? How did you get into this? I always say like, mm-hmm. it kind of fed me in a way. So, but yeah. Danielle and both worked together in residential substance abuse and I was in it well before I started working with her and yet you're completely right about the anxiety. It was kind of like a, what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, and, and I'm not in recovery. So I think that the reason why I was able to relate to this population so much was because I have my, I have issues with anxiety. So mm-hmm. it's really like understand that aspect of it. Like the fact that they felt like they were crawling out of their skin and all that. So I, the reason why, you know, like going into private practice, like I was able to take that experience, but also what are the underlying issues? And that's what I was most mm-hmm. interested in, not necessarily just like everyone there was like, just get them stable. I'm like, but I want to dig into what's going on there.
2: <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I, I like think that's an impulse to have, right? Because you, it's hard, even though, you know, when you're in like a residential program or someone's, you know, you know, detoxing or withdrawing from something, you do have to stabilize them. But it's hard to just not start thinking. Well, yeah, but we also wanna we we want to help them in the long term too, right? So it, it does get hard when you kind of start picking up on those little, you get those little nuggets that are being dropped about some deeper issues that you really want to sink your teeth into as a clinician.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that identifying anxiety is difficult in and of itself. And Jordan, you and I talk about this often is like, okay, well, what is this really? Is this anxiety? Is this something else? Is it what type mm. of anxiety is it? You know, because that all informs how we treat it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, especially when it comes to substance abuse or really any other treatment mm. setting, really important to figure out what's going on and attack it appropriately.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I feel like it's it's also just something that when you're working in the community mental health it's just coming up so so much and it's hard once you start to see it it's hard to to like not see it when it's there and then to not do the treatments that you know are designed for these particular issues.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, yeah. So that's kind oh. of my background.
0: So currently What are you doing with
2: anxiety? So currently I'm doing exposure therapy almost exclusively. And I'll just kind of say that as a a more broad term because there's different like protocols for different types of exposure therapy for different types of anxiety disorders. Like there's EXRP, exposure and response prevention for OCD, which we can talk about. But I really personally like to think of exposure therapy in a more general sense and And thinking about anxiety disorders in a more general sense, too, there's a lot of debate, and and I'm not the one who should really be making like definitive statements about this debate, but my personal views is I, I do like to think of anxiety disorders more generally. There's a lot of debate among psychologists and psychiatrists and and other researchers about the best way to kind of classify the different anxiety and emotional disorders. I feel like they have more in common than they do separate and then a lot of times the the DSM disorders kind of chop things up in a haphazard way so there's just so much dual diagnosis like like comorbid anxiety issues that you know it's just it's it's you know this person has anxiety and you want to understand it better but the the DSM criteria are not always the most helpful way of doing that so all of that to say, I'm doing exposure therapy now for different types of anxiety disorders. So I think whenever we're thinking of anxiety disorders, and I even like to lump in mood disorders for the most part, because I think they're actually closely related to anxiety disorders. I always like to get the biggest bird's eye perspective and then understand it from that lens before kind of moving forward and making sense of like the nitty gritty disorders and the treatment for those disorders. So I think the best perspective to take is there's a school of thought out there that is or a, an, an area of research, which is on the connection between mental health disorders and the big five theory of personality. So hmm. I can explain that a little bit. So the big five theory of personality, it's also called like, there's an acronym like OCEAN. So it stands for um, openness. Let's see if I can remember them all. Openness, extroversion, conscientiousness, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Is that five? I think it is. Yeah. So I don't, you know, sometimes this this pops up here and there when when people are reading things. So I don't know how familiar you guys are with that or, or how familiar some of the, the listeners might be. But it's, it's what I like about this theory of personality is that it was based on data. They just started doing tons and tons of data collection and trying to conceptualize people in different ways and assess them in different ways. And then they would do all these like factor analysis and they kept loading on these different factors. And so that's actually how they developed this theory. So it was a more like data-driven theory than someone just kind of like Freud that just said, oh, you know, I think you're repressed or something like that. This was based on just raw data. And they pulled out lots of different factors. And you can kind of look at this at different levels, but they find that the, the big five, that's why they call it the big five, because it's the most kind of practical way of looking at these different traits um, and for each trait, there's like, I think like two to four sub traits, and you can keep going on from there. But these are kind of some of the main factors that they're almost like the levers of our personality for each one of us, like you can push someone up in openness and pull them down in agreeableness. And it's a big part of what shapes just kind of who we are as people. So the reason I bring all of this up is because some of these levers, some of these factors are highly, highly correlated with emotional disorders um, especially anxiety disorders. So I think it's one of, this is like the genetic component when people talk about like, you know, nature versus nurture. I think this is the best way of understanding that genetic component. So obviously what our family does and and the environment we're raised in is still very, very important. But at the same time, we have different, we all have different aspects of our personality that can uh, predispose us to certain types of mental health disorders. So, one that's kind of cool is unrelated to anxiety, but one is conscientiousness. And that's just kind of the ability to be very goal directed. So, these are some of those people who they're very disciplined. This would be on the, you know the the extreme those people who are super disciplined, typically very organized, very ambitious, they're not going to kind of lay around when they have something to do, they're going to get up and get it done, kind of a lot of those people that we're probably all like a little jealous of at times and they're just super productive, but all of these different all of these different factors are on like a bell curve, right so it's not like categorical like you either are or you aren't. Uh, most of us are kind of clustered around the center. And then as you get further out to the tails, you have kind of a fewer people that are closer to the extremes. So conscientiousness, one reason I bring that up is on one end of the scale, right? So we talked about how um one end is people very ambitious. The other end is people who are maybe very not, and tend to be more impulsive. They're not as good at thinking this isn't an IQ issue, but they're they're focused more on instant gratification. And someone closer to that end of the spectrum, you start to see some maybe like gambling disorders, some impulse control issues. So if someone comes out kind of low on the conscientious scale, they can be predisposed. Now, we're not saying they're born with an impulse control disorder. We're just saying that they are probably at risk for that or predisposed for that. And the further they go down that end of the spectrum, probably the more likely uh, it is that they're going to develop a problem. And conversely, people who are higher on that end of the spectrum, there's been some research linking that to OCD, right? Because if you think about OCD, very ritualistic, very goal-driven behavior, uh, this isn't, some of these are stereotypes of OCD. So not, not everyone's OCD manifests this way, but it has been linked to that. But that's not even the factor that's most closely related to um, anxiety disorders. That factor is the N, the neuroticism. It's also known as negative affects. So it's essentially the frequency and intensity with which someone experiences negative emotion. And this is by far the most correlated with anxiety disorders as well as mood disorders. So someone who's really high up on this scale, right? So someone who just, you know, if we think, you know, the same thing happens to a group of people and one person in that group is very high on the neurotic scale, they experience the same situation. Their emotions are probably going to be much bigger. Just their internal experience of that situation they're going to be much bigger and stronger and probably last a little bit longer than for someone who's maybe on the other end of that spectrum. So the other end of that spectrum could be someone who we've all known those people who things just kind of roll off of them. They never seem to get, uh, never really seem to be phased by anything and they're just kind of always easy going. The world could be falling all, all apart around them and they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. It's all right. And so someone like that is less likely to have an anxiety disorder.
1: I never heard of the ocean. Yeah, I are. didn't either. It, I'm very fascinated right now.
2: Yeah.
1: Of course um, I, you, know, you just talked about myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. Oh my gosh, that's me. <laughs> like,
2: well, remember, we all exist, right? And I, I feel like if someone did a study of counselors and psychologists, I'm willing to bet that the average neuroticism score is probably elevated above the norm for counselors and, and psychologists.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would. I mean, I always say to people that, like, you don't get into this field because you're perfect, like you're always screwed Mm -hmm. up a little bit. Yeah, I think that's uh,
1: the most screwed up, I guess. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think that's there. There is another one of the other factors. So I think agreeableness is correlated with externalizing versus internalizing. Don't quote me on this, or maybe that's openness. I can't remember, but sometimes some of the like personality disorders, um, especially some of the externalizing disorders. So think like borderline, think some like ADHD and oppositional defiant disorders. Some of those are associated with like agreeableness, which is the A. Um, and then another one that's really pertinent to anxiety disorders is positive affect. So it's kind of like the opposite of neuroticism, which it's, so it's the degree which with which someone experiences positive emotions. So these are patients where when they're really low in this, it means that they don't experience a lot of positive emotions, right? So something that may make us like super excited for them, maybe it's just a little bit, right? Those emotions just don't come quite as easily for them. These are people who are most likely to develop chronic depression and issues like that, where they just, the the kind of natural natural reward that we get from doing things isn't quite as much. Like a good example is, Danielle, when you were telling me earlier about, you know, kind of redesigning the loft upstairs, right? Like that was it's fun. It's exciting to think about. I'm sure you're looking forward to continuing to work on it. Someone really low in positive affect may do that, but it's just kind of, eh. For, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know? um, so, some of the like a, a really common template could be someone really low in positive affect, really high in neuroticism, and then you're seeing someone who's probably very likely to develop like GAD, social anxiety. So, GAD being like a generalized kind of like a worry disease almost, and then also just kind of being depressed and starting to just withdraw and isolate, which is, I think. A common presentation that we see in a lot of patients.
0: Mm-hmm. So t- explain like, like all really fascinating, but explain like um, how you use this to inform your anxiety treatment. Like, are you focusing in on these different pieces of personality and trying to like push and pull um, those areas?
2: No, I, I feel like it's, it's fun to talk about. And I think it's a helpful way of looking at it from a theoretical perspective. I don't know. It's Sometimes I, I do think about it with certain patients, but I don't know how much it actually informs the treatment. There's a lot of research being done on does exposure therapy change? There, there was a lot of people who thought that these were just kind of unchangeable things, unchangeable aspects of our personality. There is some research showing that CBT and exposure therapy can change some of these uh, like some of our scores in these particular domains but I don't think it would go from someone who's high in neuroticism isn't going to swing to being very low in neuroticism. They're, we're probably just trying to pull them down a little bit um, but here's here's the interesting piece someone high in neuroticism right I was talking about how that probably predisposes them to having anxiety disorders. But being high in neuroticism is not the disorder yet. That's not an anxiety disorder. It's close. It's a, a factor that can contribute to it. But where it goes from being just a personality tendency to becoming an anxiety disorder is based on how we start uh, our response to those emotions, right? So if someone's having big and frequent emotions, then it's really the anxiety disorder starts when they develop habits of trying to get rid of or avoid those emotions in the first place and the triggers that cause those emotions in the first place. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: That's And even then, that's not technically an anxiety disorder. Then that avoidance would have to go to causing impairment in their life to some degree or causing them a lot of distress and then we've entered into the anxiety disorder domain, but someone could be born. And I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who have been high in neuroticism, but they have found ways of coping. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have an anxiety disorder, it just means they're, you know, neurotic, which is kind of a charged term. But I think people know what I mean when I say that.
1: So, yeah, just real quick sidebar to our listeners. Jordan mm-hmm. <laughs> is providing amazing information. Please don't die. Like, cause if I'm sitting here identifying with the things that he's saying, I'm like, I'm sure other people are too. Yeah. So yes, I just want to let you know, like this is, he's providing information. Uh, it's, it's very broad in a lot of senses. So don't diagnose yourself unless you can identify and perhaps you would have to seek your own therapy to make sure. So this is not for self-diagnosis.
2: Yes. See a professional. Um, and that just emphasizes further that these, The big five, if you're high or low in these different domains, does not mean that you have a mental health problem in the first place. We're just talking about certain personality and genetic factors that predispose someone to having these types of of disorders. Yeah. So there's a lot more I could say on these types of things, but it really comes down to... So so treatment really comes down to... This is where we can start talking about um, exposure therapy. If we look at someone who's high in neuroticism, right? They just, they tend to have bigger emotions and more frequent negative emotions than the average person. That's not a bad thing. A big goal of treatment is helping them to learn how to ride that emotional wave. And instead of trying to avoid it or control it that's when we really start to see it become an emotional disorder is when we tell ourselves, I can't cope with those emotions. Or if I have yeah. those emotions, I'm going to lose control or other people are going to notice me and judge me uh, or there's something wrong with me or, or bad. I'm a bad person for feeling this way. And instead we really want to take, those are all things, the responses that people learned over their lifetime in response mm-hmm. to having chronic frequent negative emotion. Uh, And so a big part of treatment is is relearning things or learning new things about emotions. And when you are having those big emotions, being able to sit with them and realize that they're uncomfortable, but they're not necessarily dangerous.
0: Right. So I I think that that's a big piece of the puzzle is that they're not necessarily dangerous and that Mm -hmm. we can thrive in a way while having anxiety, like therapy doesn't get rid of anxiety. It teaches us how to live with it and and manage and to manage. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And so another piece to it is when we're starting to, when we're chronically avoiding things that make us anxious, then we're also not giving ourselves to habituate to, or giving ourselves times to habituate to those situations. Right? So if I started a new job, most people are very anxious their first day at a new job. So if I said, "Uh oh, I'm feeling anxious, that's bad. And then I quit that job, I go home. Then I never learned that if I stayed there, that that anxiety slowly goes down each day. As I start to get to know people, I get familiar with the role and with my particular responsibilities. And that's what happens with anxiety. So that's just another one of those bridges that goes from having, uh, being predisposed to having an anxiety disorder to developing one right, is is when we start to just avoid those types of situations. Well, that causes me anxiety. So I'm not going to face it. I'm not going to go there.
1: Right, too. And and also, it's normalizing, like, and Danielle and I have talked about this, I do this all the time. And when I treat people, like, normalizing those situations where your anxiety will naturally be elevated, and and, and telling yourself that it's Hey, like you start a new job, you're going to be anxious, no matter how confident you feel in the work that you're doing, you're going to be anxious, whether, whether you have an anxiety disorder or not, that that elevation of anxiety will happen.
2: Absolutely. It's and it's Absolutely. To be
1: a, but like you said, it becomes problematic when someone's avoiding, say, getting a new job, because they don't want to experience that. And that's where it can become problematic when you're not moving through I I like to say moving through that those feelings and learning how to manage because you're holding yourself back
2: right and you and you actually bring up a another really good point which is that even though we're talking about neuroticism and having more frequent and more intense emotions there's a reason that we all experience these negative emotions in the first place Um, and that's because these emotions are beneficial They exist for a reason. Um, I'll often tell patients that uh, to imagine what would happen if you didn't have any physical pain. And at, at first glance, it may seem that would be great, right? It would be wonderful. But this actually happens to stroke patients where they lose feeling and in an arm or a limb, and they'll lean up against a hot stove and then look over and realize that they've, you know, have third degree burns on their hands. Um, or imagine if, if you're, you had a ruptured appendix and you just didn't feel it at all, right? Then your body's just, you know, being filled with infection and you would just drop dead. So even though physical pain is, isn't pleasant and it's uncomfortable, it is necessary for life. And the same is true for emotional pain. Emotional pain is there to tell us when things are going wrong, when we're in danger, and there can be false alarms. So essentially, it's just that uh, people high in neuroticism, they tend to just have a lower threshold for those danger alarms being triggered, where other people might have a higher threshold. It would take a lot for those yeah. emotions. And that kinda of goes really back go to the
0: evolutionary component of like like I always use the analogy of someone walking across the street. Like you need anxiety, you need fear, because mm-hmm. if you go to cross the street and you don't have either of those things, you just walk out into traffic and you'll probably get hit by a car and die. Mm-hmm. Where it you do have some anxiety, you do have some fear, then you're going to be a little bit more cautious. Look both ways, you know, wait until the road is clear Mm -hmm. and then cross the street safely.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. If neuroticism was a wholly bad thing, then it it would have been weeded out by natural selection. Yeah. Now I'm not getting into topics that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, an evolutionary biologist. So I may sound like an idiot to someone who's well-versed in that, but Essentially, these negative emotions exist because they have benefited us for survival. Now, they may not always feel good, but they exist for a reason. And another analogy I use with patients is imagine you're in an office building working, and there's a fire, and the fire alarm goes off, but the fire alarm plays like calming piano music, right? You may just ignore it. You may kind of enjoy it and just sit back and relax, right? There's a reason that fire alarms are obnoxious and annoying, right? They've got mm-hmm. the flashing lights, they've got the loud siren, and that's because they're they're motivating you to get out of the building and to stay safe. And it could be a false alarm, um, but it's trying to alert you to potential or, or very real danger that's what our anxiety is doing and what our fear and panic is doing is it's there it's like a fire alarm built into our brain and our body trying to alert us to things and if it felt good then we right. wouldn't listen to it
1: right
2: Right. We, we just wander out into the street and get struck by traffic. So all
1: of these components that you're talking about the predispositions how to manage where does this and if I'm asking the wrong question, just let me know, but where does this tie into the exposure therapy? Like as far as the exposure therapy is concerned, how, how would you, I'd say with that method, right? Is method the right word treat someone with these after you've assessed this and you can see where, where, where they're at, what their disposition, predisposition is, whether they have a disorder or not, like where do you go from
2: there? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of this is to say one of the first things, I, a lot of what we've been talking about, I'll actually go over with patients, right? This is at the beginning of treatment and this like kind of educational um, stage of treatment where I'm just giving them a lot of information, helping them conceptualize what they're dealing with, what's going on. And um, I'm also wanting to change their point of view on anxiety and fear because patients will come to treatment and they say, help me get rid of my yes. negative emotions, or help me control my emotional experience, and this is where we want to be careful how we deliver this, but essentially we we don't want to do that that would be just like saying there's you're in this office building and the the office building is burning down around you, and you're like, "Hey, can you please uh, turn off the fire alarm right that's not necessarily what we want to do. The fire alarm is not the problem, so we want to focus on emotional tolerance. And anxiety and fear tolerance is is one way that I often pitch treatment learn how to tolerate these emotions because when we're in a constant when we're in a constant state of trying to avoid negative emotions or if the negative emotions are already there and we're trying to escape them, research shows that that ends up keeping those negative emotions around longer or keeping us from achieving our goals, right? So think of someone with, with severe social anxiety. I've met with people who say, oh, well, I'm never anxious though. How can I have social anxiety? But then you realize that they live alone or with their parents and they have no friends and they have no job, um, not because there's anything wrong with their personality or their ability, but because they avoid social situations so much that they don't ever feel social anxiety, but they're avoiding situations that would trigger that. So what we want to do is help them start approaching those emotions and feeling those emotions and sitting with them and then seeing what happens on the other side of those emotions. Does it get worse? Does it continue to go up? Does it become unbearable? Do you lose control? Or maybe do those emotions start coming down and maybe the situation wasn't as as bad or as dangerous as, as your anxiety initially told you that it was. And you can start to think, oh, sometimes my anxiety has a false alarm. So to, to get into it in even more detail, we essentially, we start off doing a lot of just educational stuff because it's, it's easy to understand some of this stuff on paper, right? Um, and so that's a good place to start. But then we want to start moving into doing things differently instead of just understanding things differently. So that's kind of like the difference between if I was trying to teach someone how to swing a golf club, I could show them YouTube videos. I could model it for myself. And on paper, they may be able to pass a test on, you know, the right stance and, and what the goals are and, and the the correct movement and swing. But that doesn't mean that they're any better at actually swinging a golf club. Right? So the first part of treatment is kind of watching those, those YouTube examples on how to swing a golf club, which is that educational component. We want them to understand their disorder on paper but then the second part of treatment, and the the active ingredient in treatment, is doing things differently, and doing it differently, most of the time, a lot for a, a kind of like a short period of time. So instead of being in therapy for years, you'd be in therapy for weeks or months, depending on what's going on. So this is where these are called exposure. So when I use the the phrase exposure therapy, it's called exposure because we're exposing patients to those things that they're afraid of. We're exposing them to those fears.
1: So one, it is a shorter term therapy, right? Because they're coming in for a specific social phobia or whatever, a specific fear or anxiety, not just a generalized anxiety, right? Am I I following that correctly?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So my
1: mm-hmm. next question is, what type of person would be appropriate for that? Or can it be anybody that might be appropriate for that? Because I work with people long term on their anxiety with very similar um, with methods that to that, to, to the exposure, just that learning to manage the anxiety. What is there a specific... Type of person, or
2: no? It's it's pretty much anxiety disorders in general. So there are a few exceptions, but I would say for the most part, exposure therapy. If if you're dealing with anxiety, an an anxiety disorder, exposure therapy is 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 usually one of the most kind of one of the more faster acting forms of treatment um, because it's very real. It's it's very up in your face. Kind of forces you to to rethink things because you're. It's essentially about moving into situations you would normally avoid and seeing if all those fears that your anxiety disorder is telling you is going to come true, seeing if they happen.
0: Yeah. When I work, when I work Um, with kids and do exposure type things, not necessarily full exposures, I always frame it as an experiment. And I think that that's an appropriate way of looking at this is like, well, we're testing an outcome. So we're it's an experiment. I mean, we have our our hypothesis Mm -hmm. and we move through it. Like, well, I think that this horrible thing is gonna happen. Okay, well, let's try it. What if it does?
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think an experiment is there's in like some of the research, there's arguments about the difference between like an exposure and a behavioral experiment. But I, I do think especially presenting it to patients, pitching it as an experiment is a really good way. Of, of pitching it, because that is where we're essentially taking what their anxiety is telling them. And then we're finding ways the exposure really needs to be catered towards testing out their particular fears. And that's where it sounds easy on paper, but being able to really identify what those specific fears are, and then thinking of clever ways of actually testing those fears out, it can get really tricky at times it's not always clear cut. Yeah.
0: So how would somebody know if this is appropriate for them? What are some like signs or like experiences that somebody might have that you would suggest that they look deeper into this?
2: Well, I think exposure can be good for everyone. Uh, I know that during my training and I think you may have done this. I think you were doing this as well too, Danielle, but um, during some of the training that we've done, having us approaching things that we normally avoid. So I'm thinking, I'm speaking of exposure therapy now, not as much as like a specific, like psychological protocol, but more a general principle in life, which is anytime we have something that we're afraid of and we move towards it um, to kind of test out to see how accurate that fear is. Now, obviously there's times when we should be Anxious about things. We talked about like the first day of work. A degree of anxiety about that is normal, right? But as you stay there, you see that the anxiety goes down. If you were out hiking in the woods and a bear, you know, ran out in front of you, I wouldn't tell that person like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's approach the bear and, and, you know, because that's something that's dangerous, right? The anxiety is is telling us something very beneficial there. But in other areas where we're not sure if the danger is present, the the way that our our um, uh, anxiety might be telling us that it is then moving towards that fear and testing it out. So that can be things like, I don't know, really anything that can be getting in the way. So a common one that a lot of people experience is is a degree of social anxiety is very normal. And if you've talked to anyone that does a lot of presenting, they'll say like, oh yeah, I used to be nervous, but now I'm super comfortable with it. It's because they're essentially doing exposures, right? They're just doing lots and lots of presentations, and eventually they it becomes familiar to them. They have confidence in themselves. They they build their ability to be a good presenter. And then their mind no longer sees that as something that's very dangerous. Now, sometimes patients, there, there are patients who will come in and they say, but I do lots of presentation, but I still have debilitating social anxiety. Why is that? Why is my social anxiety not going away? And part of that is because part of it is, we don't necessarily want all of your social anxiety to go away. It's helpful and normal. Another part of it is what we would call safety behaviors. Um, so in OCD, they're called compulsions, rituals. There's lots of different terminology out there. I tend to like to call them safety behaviors. Sometimes I, I talk about avoidance strategies. These are the things we do to try to avoid the our feared outcome from occurring or to like prevent or escape uh, some type of feared outcome or something that our mind deems as dangerous. So sometimes if, if we take do like a very classic social anxiety experience, people will say like, yeah, but I go to parties and I'm still like always super anxious. And then you discover they're doing these subtle behaviors. So maybe they're not overtly avoiding social situations like the guy I talked about that lives at home, for example, but maybe they're going and they only go to parties where they know someone really well. And they stand super close to that person the entire time. And maybe they avoid making eye contact. And maybe they pregame it before every party where they have a few beers so that they're already feeling relaxed before they get there, right? So not that all of those things are necessarily wrong or bad, but when someone's dealing with debilitating social anxiety, those things actually get in the way of them feeling their anxiety and testing out their fears, right? Because they're doing all these things that in some way they feel are keeping them safe. And so what we would want to do is exposures where they don't do those things. Let's have you go to a party or some type of social event and let's have you go and, and, you know, no, one's really going to go to a social event where they don't know anyone there, but going. And I guess there are some, that's not true, but, um, going. And if there is a friend there going and striking up conversation with new people, maybe not drinking at all over the course of that exposure, Uh, making eye contact with people. And we would actually really set up strict rules for this. Like say, hey, we want you to to try to initiate conversation with one, two, or three people. I want you to make eye contact, you know, this many times, we'd go through and really test some of these things out.
0: Yeah, I was thinking back about the um the training that you referenced and that Mm -hmm. freaked me out. And um time
2: what did you do I, what was your i cleaned the thing out my tub drink? drain
0: which thankfully oh. i had cleaned out prior but i get really freaked out like it's my hair in the drain I can't. it's my soap in the drain there's no but, way <laughs> but
1: cool. it yeah. still freaks me what it is i have a physical response to that yeah me
0: too i was like my mouth was watering yeah. i was nauseous i gag
1: i get i get like
0: and i went to a really
2: So this is good. This is kind of like a. This is kind of like you guys are starting to to um, uh, react in a way that's typical for patients to react when we're doing exposures, or sometimes even talking about them. And what I'd say, if if this was like a formal exposure, and you guys were like playing patient, and I was playing therapist, we would identify all those physical sensations, and we would sit with those too right? You're gagging. Sometimes patients gag, sometimes patients gag to the point where they vomit and we sit with all of those things. I mean, we would let them clean up the vomit, (laughs) but um, all those things are super uncomfortable and unpleasant. No one wants to do them. But when we have a debilitating disorder, these are the things we kind of have to start to approach and sit with. And, oh, I gagged and it was miserable, but you know, it actually wasn't that bad or I was able to do it, I could tolerate it. Or the more I did it, then all of a sudden I noticed my gag response wasn't that bad, right? So these are silly examples, right? We can go through our life with like, you know, making other people clean out our drain or just avoiding it in some way. These are not things that I'm guessing have like impaired y'all's ability to function and like go to work and have meaningful relationships. But if it did become, that debilitating then that's exactly the type of thing we'd have to do
1: that's so interesting something so simple like that like i'm like nauseous right now just thinking about doing it and i'm like i'll just continue to dump liquid Mm -hmm. plumber down there and pretend like that doesn't there's nothing there. the thing is though
0: Clients who are going through exposure therapy, it's not just because they can't clean out the tub drain. Right. You know, it's a culmination of a lot of little things that are impeding their functioning or they're going to like great lengths to avoid. Right. Where like life would just be so much simpler and more functional if they didn't have to experience this stuff or had a higher tolerance for this stuff. Yeah,
2: exactly. It all comes down to that functional piece or if someone is functioning. And remember, um, I I really want to make this clear functioning is not categorical categorical it's not black or white it definitely is a spectrum so sometimes when when i talk about like um like impairment and functioning with patients they're like but i am functioning which is true um if they're able to you know so we see this come up a lot with people dealing with like alcohol or uh substance dependence like well i do have a job i i you know i am able to do these things but we're looking are there areas of your life that you're dissatisfied with because of your anxiety and fear. And that's how we want to look at it. Sure. There's people who are very successful in certain domains of their life that have a raging anxiety disorder, right? So it doesn't mean we can't be successful in certain areas we're talking about. And sometimes people aren't impaired in any area, but they're just, they're dealing with a significant amount of distress on a daily basis. And that's impairment as well, too. This um me. so it really just
0: comes... to me of the, um the case that we saw in one of our trainings with rafael nadal he i played tennis through school and um, he was always like mm-hmm. my tennis hero i loved him and
2: yeah, yeah for the back, first time yeah.
0: ever during that training i learned that he has active ocd and is like this amazing mm-hmm. tennis star you play tennis
2: we could say, and I would, I would be careful to say he definitely has it, but there's a lot of indicators showing that like he's doing, there's lots of footage of him, maybe not a lot, but there's, there's footage of him doing things that definitely look like rituals and OCD. Um, and you know what, maybe if we sat down and we had a candid discussion, maybe he's like, yeah, I do these things, but it really doesn't get in the way. Like I do feel compelled to do them, but it really doesn't get in the way of my well-being, And then maybe would say, okay, maybe he would be like on that OCD spectrum, but it hasn't crossed over into the, like the disorder yet. Um, Maybe, maybe it won't. Uh, Some people are able to find ways and they cope and it's kind of there, but it never quite crosses that threshold. Or maybe we sit down with him and he's stressed out and anxious all the time and miserable and he does have OCD. And so I could see either case being true. And just because he's obviously very successful as a tennis player doesn't mean that this still wouldn't be impairing or causing him significant distress on a daily basis just because he's an outstanding right. tennis Right. And star. I think
0: that that's one of the important things to note is that on the surface, people can appear to be successful and healthy and functioning well, but you don't actually yeah. know. And the individual might not realize at first how dysfunctional and disturbing some of their experiences are because they've been habitually and and working to avoid the uh the anxiety the discomfort for so long Mm
2: -hmm. yeah they don't necessarily see how much just like the example i gave of someone with social anxiety they're not feeling social anxiety on a daily basis because they've isolated themselves to essentially their home and and minimize their social contact so they're not having social anxiety but they're not reaching their potential in their goals as a person, right? Having meaningful relationships, dating, developing a career, and all of those things that um, would be important for them. And and this is, not to say those are the things that are important for everybody, although they typically are, but this is where we really look at how is this disorder getting in the way of this person's particular goals? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
2: That's where all the, you know, you guys have a background in, in substance abuse as well. That's where all the, the change happens, right, is when we connect what person, what someone's goals in life are and the things that they want to be doing with how the disorder is keeping them from reaching those goals. Just like that's true in, in substance abuse treatment, we do that with anxiety treatment as well, too. How is this getting in the way of your life? Because it's the really not motivated to do the work, it's, it's it's hard work. It's it's scary. If someone said, hey, Jordan, I'm going to put you in a closet. I'm going to throw a big-ass spider in there and you got to stand there for an hour. I'm not going to be motivated to do that, right? That would freak me out. That's kind of like what we're asking patients to do when we do this, is I want you to approach these fears and sit with them.
1: It's very act-oriented. Very act of uh, acceptance.
2: Absolutely. There's a lot of there's a lot of act principles that easily integrate into exposure therapy because we 're talking about tolerating emotions that 's a very yep. act act based principle tolerating emotions instead of trying to get wit- get rid of them so I love incorporating act type stuff into exposure work because I think they they complement each other very well
0: well this has been an incredible amount of. Knowledge and totally fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm. That was very fascinating. It was fun
2: talking with you guys. So I'd be more than happy to. Yeah, to that would again.
0: be awesome. That'd be awesome. For those of you who are listening, please keep in mind again that you know Jordan was not providing information to diagnose. <laughs> he was just providing the information. Uh, but if you are interested in exploring some things that are going on with you at a deeper level, uh, Psychology Today is a great resource. And reaching out if you have insurance to your insurance provider as well Mm -hmm. to find clinicians in your area who can help out with this sort of thing. So Jordan, thanks again. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Jordan.
2: Yes. Thank you guys for having me on here. It was a lot of fun. So uh,
0: hopefully we'll see you again soon and uh, stay tuned next time for fascinating information. As always, we'll provide the suicide prevention lifeline at the end of this, as well as further resources on our Instagram and TikTok pages. So we'll see you next time. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or desire to self-harm, please reach out to the National Suicide Lifeline at 800-273-8255
2: for 24-hour support.